Good evening. We're in Matthew. We're going to finish chapter 14. Last week, uh, we spoke about Jesus' walking on the water, and we spoke of how, you know, the reason Jesus does miracles isn't to show off. You know, it isn't to say, hey, look what I can do. And we kind of explored the idea of Jesus actually walking on the water for the sake of the disciples and for the sake of even Peter and what he experienced. You know, as we say Jesus walked on the water, we also need to include that Peter walked on the water too. Um, I think that's the miraculous aspect of it. Jesus walking on the water, you know, in some ways that doesn't strike us as, you know, of course Jesus could walk on the water. But when you think Peter walked on the water, you think, what? Peter? And once again, we see that when Peter was challenged or when they asked Jesus, show us something to prove that you're who you are, Peter's response was, if you're really Jesus, then you will call me to do what you can do. And that Jesus has enabled Peter to do what he can do, and he's enabling us to do what he can do as well. And so now in verse 34, it says, when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding county. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. It seems so strange that there are so few words that give an account for this event, because this is amazing. But we can just read over it and say, yeah, all who touched his cloak and everything were healed. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, let's go on to the next chapter. But think about that. What an amazing thing. Jesus is here. Everyone, come on, bring your friends, family, you know, your your children who are ill, your friends who are in bondage and and possessed and those who are addicted and broken, bring them and guess what? Jesus can heal them. And it says that they brought all their sick to him and he healed all of them. It says that they wanted to touch the edge of his cloak. It's interesting because at the corners of a Jewish robe, as we read about in Numbers chapter 15, were these tassels, these tassels that had blue thread woven through them to symbolize that the commands of God were originally from heaven. And here is Jesus, the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, the man who is actually God come from heaven, and he is the one who is able to touch and to heal them, symbolic of who he is, where he is from, fulfilling what the law and prophets was to do to heal the sick, to uh, restore sight to the blind, to preach the good news to those who were lost, the brokenhearted. And here he is fulfilling those things. And it's amazing, too, that there's no mention of him preaching. I mean, there's just so little on this, but it's an amazing event, and there's no account of Jesus giving a message, no account of an altar call, no account. He just comes in and does this healing work. 
And you know, sometimes there is a place to just do healing work. Sometimes that helping those in need is all that is necessary to preach. Sometimes the words are needed, but sometimes they're not. And it's good to recognize that because, again, we can get into a place where, well, you know, we're not just preaching some social gospel. It's not just about restoring, you know, needs and helping people out. The gospel is preaching, you know, Jesus to people. Well, yeah, sometimes it isn't. And you know what? Sometimes it's just helping people. Sometimes our, our extending ourselves to reach out and help someone, that is enough. Well, when is it enough? How, how do you know? I don't know. Sometimes. Well, when is the time? Well, here was the time. It just depends. But I think we can get caught up in our this is how it's supposed to be done methods that we can actually push things maybe forcefully sometimes when all that was necessary was to heal. And, of course, you would think that would be enough, touching and healing all that were sick. That would be pretty good. But sometimes it's just going down to Mexico and helping to supply the needs or to Haiti or the other areas or to Foothill Family Shelter. Sometimes that's what we can do, and that's enough. And we entrust those things, that God can use those things and doesn't always need verbal proclamation of the gospel. Sometimes he does. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes that healing work is enough. The, the interesting thing is, though, sometimes people hear the message and respond, and sometimes they hear the message and they don't respond. Sometimes people receive the benefit of someone's reaching out and, and giving to them charitably, and they respond in a, a wonderful way, and sometimes they don't. It's just how things go. Sometimes they hear, don't respond. Sometimes they get, don't respond. Sometimes they do. And we see that throughout Jesus' ministry, there were thousands upon thousands that were benefited by what Jesus did, whether it was feeding the 5,000, he's going to feed some more later on, total of 9,000 that we have a count of, that's 9,000 people he reached Multitudes were healed by him. Here we see everyone who they brought to him was healed. We don't know how many that were, but there were thousands upon thousands who benefited from Jesus' work and ministry through healing, through feeding. But where were they when he was arrested and taken to the cross? They scattered. They didn't want it. It was just to get a benefit. And sometimes that's what people do. It didn't stop Jesus from ministering. It didn't stop him from healing. It didn't stop him from loving or for caring. He did what he could do. Those who responded did. Some do, some don't. And it's still the case today. It gets frustrating, but we can't take it too personally because that's what happened to Jesus. And it brings comfort to know that, well, sometimes they respond, sometimes they don't. They did that with Jesus. They're going to do that with us too. And I, if you're like me, no, I want you to respond. I just gave you 20 bucks. You better be at church Sunday. <laughs> you guys know what I'm saying? It's like, come on. I just, I just bought you dinner and breakfast. 
get to, you better be at church. At least that's, maybe I'm exposing my heart a little too much, but sometimes it's just like, come on, what's wrong with you? But we don't see Jesus ever doing that. That's just me. Um, Okay, chapter 15. Let's move quickly so I don't get embarrassed. Um, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do you... Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. <laughs> now, let me explain this. Because in, in our minds, we go to a place and something inside of me wants to just say, See, Mary? Um, <laughs> but that's not the case. That's not what's happening here. Okay, the Pharisees that came from Jerusalem, Jerusalem is now about a hundred miles away. And so these Pharisees from Jerusalem would be some of those who are probably the higher ups. There are about 6,000 Pharisees throughout the region. We know in chapter, I think it was 12, that some of the Pharisees plotted to kill Jesus after he had done some of his miraculous things. We don't know if these Pharisees are in on it now, if they know about the plot, but they're definitely coming out to find out what is this rabbi doing that we're hearing about. The word has come to them, and they're coming out to to check him out and see what's taking place. And when they ask, why don't your disciples... Why do they break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. He's not talking about cleanliness here. He's not talking about the fact that they didn't wash their hands. He's talking about a ceremonial cleansing that was something that was put into practice. The Gospel of Mark talks about it a little bit more in depth because Mark is dealing with the Gentiles and they don't know what he's talking about. Matthew here is dealing with the Jewish people and they would understand that's found in Mark chapter 7, if you want to go through. And it's talking about a, a ceremonial cleansing. It's something that's very elaborate. It's something that is a spectacle. It's something that they do as a symbol. M- many of you have gone to church and maybe have been in, involved with the church, a Catholic church or Episcopal church, where there's a lot of tradition and they'll, you know, hold the Eucharist up and they do all these things. It's a, a symbol of what they're doing and it's something that is elaborate and it's made to be seen. Well, that's what they would do with the washing of their hands. It was a tradition that they had. And you see, what they're doing is they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, huh, why aren't you doing what we, the leaders, our tradition tells you that you are supposed to do? Why aren't you following us and the way we do things? And... What's taking place here, kind of an underlying theme that Jesus is just going to blast them for, is basically, why don't you do according to our, our traditions? It's They're saying that our authority, you're defying it. Why aren't you submitting to the authority of our traditions? Because we're the ones who are leading We are the ones who are in charge, and you're not doing things the way we want you to do them. 
That's really what they're saying. They're coming here and they're saying, you're not going through the ceremony that we have initiated that would become later a part of their tradition, the Mishnah, their rules and their regulations. Why aren't you doing things the way we want you to do them? And so Jesus says, <laughs> don't, you should know, just don't challenge Jesus. You, you would think, and eventually they do know, but they didn't know yet. So Jesus replied in verse 3, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? And now see what's going on. Why don't you do what our traditions tell you? And Jesus says, why do you break the command of God for your traditions? What's higher, the command of God or your traditions? Well, we know the commands of God, but that's what he's bringing to bear here. For God said in verse 4, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Bam. Jesus just let them have it. You see, they said, why don't you follow our traditions? And Jesus says, your traditions don't follow God's commands. In fact, here's an example. You're supposed to honor your father and mother. And when you have the means to care for them financially, you don't. You've made a loophole to say, we don't need to because the money that we are supposed to give to them to help care for them, we are dedicating that to God so it's more important. And really, it's just your excuse to keep your money. And he's exposing their hypocrisy. He's exposing that their traditions are there for themselves. They're not really the commands of God. And then he quotes Isaiah. You, you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Why would he say your hearts are far from me? Because in your heart, what you are doing is wanting this for yourself. In your heart, what you're doing is disobeying the authority of God. They're quick to get rid of the commands that are in conflict with what they want to establish and set for their tradition. It's interesting that the thought of honor your father and mother, in our thoughts many times, it's something we tell our little kids. And we want to use everything we can to tell our kids to honor us. Don't be a brat. Honor your father and mother. But this was really meant for adults to honor their Older parents. It wasn't meant for the little kids. It was meant for people our age or my age or around that age. And as I get older, I want my kids to know that this is, again, for you. But it's also for me. It's something that they were supposed to do and show respect and care for their parents. And you see, the authority without compassion is a dangerous thing. Wanting authority, wanting to be in charge, but not caring about people is a bad thing. And that's exactly what was taking place here. 
Albert Einstein said, only a life lived for others is worthwhile. And when they're living their lives for themselves, they are not people who can be trusted with God's authority. Jesus, on the other hand, lived his life for others. And he could be trusted with the authority of God because when all power was his, what did he do? He washed the disciples' feet. The one who had all authority, who was also love, served. He was the example. He did what authority is supposed to do, and that is to care for others. I read this blog today by Seth Godin. Seth Godin's a, an author and speaker, and he wrote these. He's got these just snippets that are really brilliant. And this one was, the quickest way to get things done and to make change. He says, not the easiest, but the quickest. First, don't demand authority. Second, eagerly take responsibility. And third, relentlessly give credit. And you see, that's really the opposite of what was taking place here. The authority, the Pharisees demanded authority. They were eager to give responsibility. And they were relentless to take credit. So instead of not demanding authority, they did demand the authority. Why don't you follow our traditions? Instead of taking responsibility, they wanted to give responsibility. Why don't you do the things that we tell you to do? And they wanted the credit instead of giving the credit. And it's kind of a little test for us to see where are we at with these things. Because I think this character of wanting authority is something that really challenges us. What do you do when you have authority? How do you wield it? Are you tyrannical? Are, are you demanding? Or are you serving with your authority? And, and I can look back at times when I worked and was a foreman in a shop that did fabrication. And I thought the way you got to get things done is just to be heavy-handed, to be demanding, just be controlling. And, and I, was, I wasn't good. I got things done, yeah, to a certain extent, but I could have been a better example. And this is a challenge for us. How do we deal with the authority that's given to us? What they wanted was to wield their authority. They challenged Jesus, and Jesus exposed their hypocrisy. You guys have this authority, but you use it for your own sake, and you negate the commands of God for your own personal traditions. And I wonder if we are in danger of doing that sometimes. We need to be careful that our ideas of what is holy don't contradict contradict what God's ideas are for holy, that we don't make our own traditions, that we acknowledge that what's really important are people, what God really cares about are people, what God's authority does is serve people. But we have our own ideas of, of what is sacred. You know, if you were in a place where you were with some people and you were freezing to death and the only thing you had 
to create a fire to warm everybody were a stack of Bibles. Would you burn the Bibles to save the people? And I don't know where you've grown up, but you might be thinking, oh, no, don't burn the Bible. I'm I'm with you, believe me. I'm not here to burn Bibles. But you see, you should gladly be willing to burn the Bibles to save the human beings. Jesus died for people. He didn't die for the scriptures that we have. Don't make what is holy by God's standard, something else. Does that make sense? You guys following what I'm saying? And I'm not trying to put down the scriptures. I'm just trying to put in focus what is important. What God really cares about are people. And if you would allow someone to die because you didn't want to keep them warm because the Bible is sacred, your priorities are out of whack doesn't mean I don't respect or think the scriptures are holy. But by taking a stance that says, oh no, the Bible is a holy book, we can't burn it to save the human life, is violating what God's purposes are. In China, they take a Bible and they will rip out the pages and they will give it to individuals to remember so that everyone can have a part of the scriptures and then they'll switch them and they'll change these scriptures. Why? Because they don't respect the Bible? No, because they want to know the Bible and having just one Bible for thousands of people, this is how they get everyone to know what the Bible says. And so actually their love for the Bible causes them to tear it apart. Where here in the United States, where I have five Bibles on one shelf, and I have some more over here, and I have a couple in the trunk of my car, you know, to me, oh, you're going to tear apart the Bible? That's terrible. What do you mean that's terrible? You've got a Bible sitting in your trunk that doesn't do anything. Yeah, but i got to keep my Bible whole. This is holy book right here. It's holy when it's ingested. It's holy when it's believed. It's holy when it takes authority in our lives. Because this is meant to change lives. God cares about the people and we need to be careful that we don't make traditions or things holy that aren't God's idea of what is holy or unique. And what God is caring about is people. And so he exposes this tradition. And then in verse 10, he calls the crowd to him. Now imagine, he just blasted the Pharisees. He just, he laid them open. And then he goes, hey, everyone, come here. I want to tell you something while the Pharisees are there. And he's just blasted them. So he calls the people, the crowd to him. And he said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. But what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. And so he's trying to just add salt onto the wound. You guys were trying to ridicule me and my disciples for the way we're doing things. Listen, people come around here. It's not what goes into you that defiles you or makes you unclean or makes you unholy. It's what comes out of you. And then Peter, the disciple, well, it doesn't say Peter. I just assumed it was him. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you not know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? hey Jesus Pharisees are kind of ticked I don't know if you realize this or not but they were a little upset with what you had to say 
Why would they say this? Because they were concerned with what the Pharisees thought. They were concerned with what the Pharisees thought about them. And so they went to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I don't know if you know this, but Pharisees were pretty upset with the things you had to say. I don't know if you knew this or not. Do you know about this? You just wonder what's going on and why would they even say this if it wasn't for their own concern? And then he replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. And so Jesus is saying, don't worry about them. They are not planted by God and will be rooted up. They and those who follow them will both end up in the pit. And so Jesus is giving this illustration. What goes into you isn't going to defile you. Things cannot be religiously clean or unclean. Only people can. And it's real important to recognize this. And people are not defiled by things. They can only be defiled by themselves and behaving irreligiously or irresponsibly. So it's not things that defile us. We defile ourselves. And it's important to to understand this because, once again, this is giving responsibility to us in our conduct, what we do. And this is why I have such a hard time with what we call Christian. Oh, I read this book. Oh, is it a Christian book? That fries me. No, books can't be Christian. Jesus didn't die for books. Oh, that music is a Christian? No. Music can't be Christian. Jesus didn't die for music. Oh, it's a a Christian bookstore. No, it's not. Bookstores don't represent Jesus. Only people do. And I know some people think I'm nitpicky, but I think it's really at the heart of what we really need to get back to is the responsibility that we have to represent Jesus, not our music. Was Beethoven's music Christian? It has no lyrics. Well, was he a Christian? Does that, is that what determines if the music's Christian or not? Or is it just good music? Well, I don't listen to that because, you know, that's not Christian. Well, I know of Christians, quote, who make Christian music, and I have heard stories of some people in Christian bands who have lived very unchristian lives. What do we do with that? You probably have heard their music, their worship songs are sung, and they leave, they live terrible lives. What do you do with that? Is it Christian music still? No, music is not Christian. Books are not Christian. Businesses aren't Christian. Only people can represent Jesus and live like Jesus. And it's real important that we understand that because you 
cannot blame things for living an unchristian life. Only people can live an unchristian life. Things do not make us clean or unclean, religious or irreligious. Only people can defile themselves. We have to take that responsibility. Now, there are things that are bad in books or in movies or in music. There are things that represent the truths of Jesus in books or in movies or even in clothing. It has a statement that is Jesus's words. And so there is scripture on a t-shirt, but the t-shirt is not Christian. You understand what I'm saying? People are Christians. People are responsible for their conduct. The shirt doesn't make a person a Christian. The book doesn't make a person a Christian. The music doesn't make something Christian. What makes something Christ-like is the person yielding themselves to Christ, living like Christ. They were called Christians because they saw that they lived like Jesus. And they were identified by those who did not believe as being like Jesus. And that's where we got to get back to. So that the world looks at us and they say, you're like Jesus, the way you conduct yourself. You see, the non-believers saw those who were following Jesus and called them Christians. Today, the church calls themselves Christians and the world calls them hypocrites because they fail to live like they know Jesus lived. And so we got to be careful that we don't put things in the wrong place and priority, that we don't con- connect a person's holiness with the things Oh, I went into their house and they had scriptures all over. Well, that's great. That's wonderful. Maybe it's a great reminder. I'm not putting those things down. Oh, they had Christian music playing. Great, wonderful, hallelujah. You know, that that's all good. But that does not mean that they are right with God. Their conduct will show that. And that's what Jesus is exposing here with this, the Pharisees. And he says, you know what? God didn't plant them. He's going to pull them up, they're blind, they're leading the blind, and they're both going to fall in the ditch. And that's it. Then Peter, that's probably why I thought it was Peter, said in verse 15, explain the parable to us. (laughs) And Jesus says, are you still so dull? (laughs) And really this word translates in different things, but it's kind of like, are you really that stupid? Are you that unintelligent? Are you unable to get what I was trying to say? (laughs) And he really does kind of just, are you serious, Peter? And Jesus asked them, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? (laughs) Heaven got it. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immortality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. It does not make them unholy. The ceremonies don't defile the person. 
Food has a physical, not spiritual effect, but the things said and done are what will defile us. And these actions flow out of what wrong attitudes we have. That's why the Pharisees could plot to murder Jesus. But outwardly, they did all the right religious ceremonies. Why? Because there was murder in their hearts. The ceremonies didn't make them clean. It was their heart that made them unclean. And that's true with us, and we need to recognize that because many times we try and put on this idea, if I can just do these holy, quote, things, then I will be a, quote, holy person. And so we try to appease the defilement that's within us with outward ceremonies, going to church, praying, reading our Bible, um, you know, saying the rosary, whatever those things. All religion has people doing these kinds of things, including the Christian church. Well, I have to do these things. Why? Because I have to deal with the problems inside of me. Well, all those things could be good things. But recognize the problem is the heart. It's not the lack of the things. The reason you're having these thoughts of murder or slander or adultery or sexual immorality or thievery, lying, isn't because you're not doing enough of this. It's because there's a problem inside. The problem needs to be fixed. That's why Jesus came, to fix our hearts, to change the core from the inside out so that now the inside will start to match on the outside. And so many times we want to fix the inside by doing enough of the outside. You know, Muslims pray five times a day, some good Muslims, more than most Christians, because they are trying to do through ceremonies and fix through their ceremonies what's taking place in their heart. And those things are good. The prayer is a good thing. But that is not going to fix the condition. And Jesus is here, is cutting to the condition. Don't you see? It's what's in you that needs to be healed. It's what's in you and that comes out that produces these things. And so we need to get the inside clean so that these actions flow from a clean heart and not from a heart that's broken and diseased and filled with sin. And so he lays it out, tells them, and then leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted, 
and her daughter was healed at that moment. Now, it's no coincidence that this story takes place right after what we've just read, because they are connected. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to that region, Tyre and Sidon. It's the only time that Jesus that we know ventured outside of the Jewish territory. And it's interesting, and we wonder, why would he do this? Why would he do this now? I wonder if he left the Jewish territory just to make a point of what he is trying to hammer home with the disciples after what just transpired. He's no longer going to be followed by the crowds of of the Jewish people because he's going out of their territory and they didn't have anything to do with the Greeks, the Gentiles, the people who he's going to now be surrounded by. And so maybe he left just for that reason, to get away from the multitudes, but maybe he left also to try and teach the disciples a lesson. And it's interesting, some of the commentaries that I read on this passage, you know, it's, it doesn't sound like, this doesn't, this isn't how we want to picture Jesus or the disciples. It just doesn't come across very nice. And everyone's trying to taint, spin it, you know, well, you know, this is what's really going on. In fact, some of them said that the disciples actually were telling Jesus, go ahead and heal her so she'll stop bothering us. But that's not what the text says. They just tell her, or they just say that he told them, the disciples told Jesus, send her away. They didn't say heal her so she'll go away. He just said, get rid of her. And I wonder if Jesus doesn't go out to this region where there are no longer the Jewish people. These are the people the Jews despise. These are where you've got the racial tension as high as it can be. These are the people who they thought the least of. And so you can put that in into whatever category maybe you grew up. If you grew up in a home that was extremely prejudiced against a certain race or religious belief, and you know they were always talking derogatory around those people, well, that's where Jesus goes, is with those people. And then this lady cries out to him. And you can get the sense from her cry that she is desperate. How would you feel? If your daughter was in this condition, was possessed and suffering terribly, what would you do to try and get her delivered? She has no problem going to Jesus and cries out to him, and Jesus did not answer her. Did not answer a word. Why? That just seems so callous, so cold. Here's a mom begging for her daughter who's being tormented and suffering terribly and Jesus did not answer a word. Why? Why would he wait so long? Maybe it was for the disciples' sake. Maybe he's trying to to draw them in and he does. 
Because finally they go, Jesus, get rid of her. She's bugging us. And so Jesus goes on and he doesn't get rid of her. He, he kind of baits the hook. And he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. You see, this is what they would have heard. This is the idea they had in their mind. And, and indeed, this is who the Messiah was called out to, specifically. And so I can see the disciples saying, yeah, that's right. He's here for us, not you, lady. Go on, get out of here. This isn't their best moment. So he goes, I'm only here for the lost sheep of Israel. The woman knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. And, you know, we read this, but I don't know if we see how passionate this moment is. This woman was loud enough to be annoying the disciples. This woman then came up, knelt out, and I can imagine her just crying out to Jesus and saying, help me. And so this is a tense moment that's taking place. Here's a woman crying out for the sake of her daughter. Here is Jesus seemingly indifferent. Here are the disciples saying, just tell her to get, get lost. And Jesus says, I'm only here for Israel. And she says, help me. And Jesus goes on a little further. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And now here, the commentaries that I read, they all are very strong to point out he's not talking derogatory dogs. He's talking little house dogs. I don't care. It's still talking dogs. Dogs is dogs. Yeah, some are worse and some are better, but they're all dogs. He just called this woman a dog. And he did it for a reason. And I believe he did it specifically for the disciples' sake. And the reason he is doing this is not only for the disciples' sake, he's doing it because in this woman he is going to see something that he can commend. And she does, in verse 27, yes it is, Lord, she said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She says, Lord, I will take anything you have. And, and you know, what we don't get is how Jesus said these things. You know, when he says it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, did he smile? Was he stern? Did he give her a little wink? Was he trying to pull something out? I mean, I just, there's so much we are lacking here. Wondering, how did Jesus communicate with this woman? Because she continued, and finally, it, you just feel as if Jesus is smiling in verse 28, and he says, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed at that moment. Now, what's taking place? Again, the reason this is here right after this last passage is because what Jesus is doing is he just confronted the Pharisees on their thoughts of purity and cleanliness and that it is not the outward circumstance, but the inward intent that shows the person. And now here he's showing mercy to a woman who is considered unclean. He's showing them that your traditions, 
the traditions that you have been following are very similar to what we just rebuked in the Pharisees. They are carrying now into your prejudice with this woman who we've considered unclean, who you've thought as just a dog. And you see, that's the same thing that the Pharisees were doing. Why don't you follow our traditions? Why don't you clean your hands the way we tell you? Why don't you stay away from these people? Because they are not God's people. They are unholy. They are ungodly. Don't have anything to do with them. And Jesus just confronts them with the hardest thing that they have to deal with is their own prejudice. Lord, make her go away. And he's giving them an opportunity to actually say, Lord, can you heal her? He's giving them an opportunity to show mercy. He's giving them an opportunity to see that God cares about all mankind, not just your religious group, not just the Christians. That God loves the Muslims, the Buddhists, the Hindus, just as much as he loves the Christians. Just as much. And if you've got the attitude that he loves us more because we believe in Jesus, you're blind to the heart and compassion of God. God so loved the world that he gave his son. He died for those who were lost. While we were yet sinners, Christ gave himself for us. He is merciful beyond our ability. The problem we have with God is he is more merciful than we are. We have those boundaries of what our mercy will go to, and God goes further still. And we have a hard time with that because... I don't like those people. I don't like the way they deal with things. I don't like their laws. I don't like their traditions. They're ungodly. They're perverted. They're sick. They're, and they're dogs. Jesus, they are dogs. Let's get out of this place. Tell her to go away. I don't want to have anything to do with them. Don't you see how defiled they are? And Jesus says, woman, you have incredible faith. Why did... She had faith because she believed in Jesus. She came to him and would take whatever he would give her. The Pharisees, on the other hand, all they wanted to do was nitpick at Jesus' way of not doing things their way. Why don't you do things our way? You're not following our traditions. And we need to be careful that we don't make our traditions the standard of holiness, that it's got to be God's standard of holiness. And holiness is always going to care for people. It's always going to love people. It's always going to reach out past our prejudice, past those areas where we have difficulties. It's going to push us into the area of being uncomfortable. It doesn't mean that Jesus accepts the wrongs that were being done in the Gentile world. It doesn't mean that he was winking a blind eye to all their idolatry and all their perversion. It doesn't say that, but he cared about them. And all it took was one woman to ask, and he was willing to respond. Are we looking for that person who is asking? Are we listening for that one who's saying, please help? 
And when they call out and they ask for help, are we going to tell them, get away until you get your life cleaned up? You need to become a proselyte, become Jewish, and then then once you get ceremonial clean, once you get rid of your lifestyle, stop living, you know, with your your girlfriend or stop your homosexual lifestyle or, you know, quit using these drugs, stop doing these things, and then you can start coming to church and we'll start helping you then. Or do we listen and you say, you want help? Come on, let me tell you about the mercy of God right where you are, right with the things that are going on in your life. And allow God to take that person right there. And it might just be bread crumbs going out to those who are considered dogs. But it might be enough to heal them and restore them. And that's what we want to be able to do. I believe that this is one of those stories that are just baffling. But I think what it's trying to do is expose how blind we can be to the heart of God because of our religious beliefs. And I think that's what Jesus exposed in the disciples here. Well, let's pray. Father, once again, I am amazed at how you bring truth out from these pages, how you expose our hypocrisy, how you confront our prejudice how you deal with our foolishness and dull of understanding minds. God, you are always patient, long-suffering, loving, extending yourself out, not only to this woman, but to your disciples. Lord, you are clear. You don't compromise. You aren't there to try and win the approval of the religious leaders, the Pharisees. You you could care less about their status or their traditions or their ceremonies. You have no regard for them because they weren't planted by you. What you have regard for is the lost those who are seeking help. What you have regard for is a world full of broken and sick people who are in desperate need of healing and salvation. And Lord, whenever our beliefs get in the way of your heart, then that is not the gospel. Whenever our traditions and our ceremonies would hinder someone from coming to you, then that is not the gospel. That is not your heart. And so I pray, God, that we would be mindful of our conduct, that we would not put ceremonies above the things that are holy, that we would not put traditions in the way of reaching out to those who are lost and hurting and seeking you. And may you give us wisdom and discernment to know when we are casting pearls before swine or when it is someone desiring the crumbs from your table. God, I pray that you would allow these words to penetrate our hearts and our minds and do work within us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.